The following pre-recorded program is paid for by SSI Guardian. Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg with your host, psychologist and author, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Living Well with Dr. Peg explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics brought to you by SSI Guardian. Living Well with Dr. Peg shares effective and practical psychological strategies based on biblical principles for living well and staying safe. To listen to previous episodes, learn more about Dr. Peg's mental health and safety workshops, or to register for an upcoming VIP personal transformation retreat. Visit drpegradio.com. And now, here's your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell Clark. Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning in for today's episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, which is brought to you every week by our sponsor, SSI Guardian. And SSI Guardian has set the new standard in advanced safety education and solutions. We're living in a violent world, and you never know when a violent attack can occur in your community, school, worksite, or place of worship, and SSI Guardian has the solutions and training that will help you and your family stay safe wherever you are. Be sure to go to SSIGuardian.com to learn more about their products and services. Living Well with Dr. Pegg is coming to you from Denver, Colorado, and streaming around the world online and from your smartphone apps. And if you missed last week's episode or any episode of Living Well with Dr. Pegg, be sure to go to drpegradio.com for the program archives or to connect with my sponsor, SSI Guardian, and to learn about my upcoming Do Something Different for a Change personal transformation retreat. And did you know that you only have a few more days to register for my retreat? It's on Saturday, June 17th in Denver. And if you're feeling stuck, confused, and ready for change, you can learn life-transforming strategies and gain clarity about where you are, where you want to go, and what's holding you back. You'll leave feeling excited about doing something different and confident that you're moving in the right direction. Space is limited, so register now for my June 17th Do Something Different for Change Personal Transformation Retreat in Denver. Go to drpegradio.com and click on Retreat. Today our topic is an important topic that could save your life. Do you know the signs that someone is moving on a path to violence? Would you know what to do if you saw concerning behaviors? How do professionals determine the risk of violence and manage a potentially violent situation in person to keep everyone safe? My guest today has the answers to these questions. FBI Special Agent Jonathan Grusing was assigned to the Denver Division of the FBI in 1996 and presently serves as the coordinator of the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime. Special Agent Jonathan Grusing, thanks for being here with me today in the studio. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Um, I know uh, when I've had uh, guests in the past from the CIA and other law enforcement agencies, people are often curious. Uh, they've never met someone from the FBI or the CIA. Can you share with the listeners a little bit about your background and your path, how you came to work with the FBI? Sure. Thanks. I went to Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas. All right. I was getting a master's in business primarily because there were no jobs out there when I was getting my undergraduate. And at a career fair, I met an FBI agent. Uh, I was fascinated by him. I never thought of that as a line of work. He gave me back then a VHS tape to watch. (laughs) You're showing your age. Exactly. (laughs) That said, uh, you might have to use deadly force in this line of work. It might be used against you. So it, it gave you the expectations right away that this was not something on TV, 
but a, a serious matter. But the agent said, and I believe those words are true today after being in for 20 years, that you will not be a millionaire, but you will love what you do, mm-hmm. and every day will be different. And I can say his words are still true today. Wow. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and so what kind of advice would you give to someone listening, uh, maybe a, a recent high school or college graduate who's thinking, this might be a path for me? What what could they do? What should they do next? Sure. Uh, we do deal with a lot of people, whether they're family or friends, that have interest in the FBI. The first is to make good choices in your life. Mm-hmm to not disqualify yourself from whether it's the FBI or some profession that might look closely at your background. The second is to find a field of study or an occupation that you will succeed at and pursue that. And then once you pursue that and you find out maybe that's not what you want to do for the rest of your life, apply for the FBI. Mm. We like to think we sign people to a 20-year contract because we give you a rewarding op- occupation, and it's we invest a lot in the training as well. So we are primarily looking for people as a second career mm-hmm. if the first one is not what you want to do for the rest of your life. Uh, we accept people from 23 to 37 years old, and yeah, we just encourage those people who are seeking the FBI to do those things, maintain a, mm-hmm. a clean, good lifestyle, and then excel at your normal job or whatever's been put in front of you as if you were going to do it for the rest of your life. Right. So really looking for people with good character is kind of what I'm taking from that, someone who's made good choices, and then someone who's bringing something to the table, bringing some skills and experience to the FBI, whatever that field might have been before they look at a career with the FBI. Yes, we're pretty heavy on problem solving. Mm-hmm. So for myself as a, a retired college professor, critical thinking is a big, a big skill that we're always uh, trying to find ways to embed that into every course that we teach on the college level, because uh, it's so easy to look things up online these days and get information. But how do you think critically about it and apply it to solve problems? That's really Uh, an important skill set probably for any profession these days. Exactly. And certainly with the FBI. Well, thanks for sharing that information. Let's talk about uh, our topic today really is about violent crime prevention, targeted violence in particular. And so what is the role of the FBI in violent crime prevention? Well, we have a couple of different roles. We had some events that caused us to reevaluate how we approach violence. Uh, I have worked violent crime in the Denver area for 18 years, and we used to be a reactive squad prior to September 11th. Uh, After September 11th, uh, the FBI and other agencies realized we need to be proactive instead of reactive, and that changed the way we addressed violence in the terrorism aspect. The same has happened in the criminal aspect the shooting that occurred in New Haven, Connecticut in 2012 when Adam Lanza went in and killed 21st graders gave us an, an initiative similar to that of September 11th in that our role, at least my role here in Denver, was to get the word out to educators, to law enforcement, even to some mental health professionals 
of ways to possibly prevent violent acts, criminal acts, from happening as well. So we've tried to get ahead of the curve instead of being behind it like we used to be as an agency. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be one of the themes of our conversation today is the importance of prevention. We're grateful when law enforcement is available in the midst of a crime occurring and in the aftermath. And so it's great to hear that philosophically the agency is looking at prevention. And um, that's one of the roles of this program. My, my, my program in general is mental health awareness Uh, violence prevention safety and so I appreciate uh, the expertise that you'll be able to bring and uh, the conversation we'll have Uh, let's uh, talk about targeted violence in particular we hear that term targeted violence uh, but can you give us a definition a working definition of that that's what we'll be focused on here today sure and it's probably easy to contrast that to what is not targeted violence Effective or emotional violence is one person against another, possibly a group, where emotions are running high, and you have a very short decision-making planning cycle. Mm -hmm. So those are very hard to prevent and very hard to predict because they happen on the spur of the moment. And that would be something like perhaps a street fight, a bar fight, um, an altercation, um, someone walking in on a spouse maybe in, in an indiscretion and just kind of... Um, you said emotionally just kind of exploding and losing it and, exactly. and not being not that they planned it it's just in the moment the heat of the moment we hear that expression right and that is not what we consider targeted violence targeted violence incorporates uh, planning preparation a decision making process possibly even research and the targeting of course means that you're focusing on something whether it's an individual a business or a group. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, a lot of experts uh, have concerns about our use of language in describing individuals involved in violent attacks. Um, there can be uh, glorification of the person and event. Um, what what recommendations does the FBI have in law enforcement um, for the proper language to avoid glorifying um, the perpetrators in these events? Because we know, and you'll talk later about Uh, one of the signs or indicators that someone is possibly considering violence is they start to study some of these more notorious incidents. Um, Columbine, for example, is something that's pretty common that an attacker would have studied it and maybe even aspires uh, to do something similar. So what, what can you tell the listeners about our use of language and the use of language in the media in describing these types of violent attacks? Sure. Let me tell you personally how I learned that, and then I'll tell you the FBI's stance. So for my violent crime years, I worked bank robberies primarily. And one of the ways we were able to catch these offenders was to name them so the public would have a name associated with uh, an image if they saw it on the television. Mm. And the more senior agents told me early on, you do not want to give that offender, the bank robber, a name that would glorify, that would magnify what he's doing as something that is good. Mm-hmm. Not, or not necessarily good, but notoriety. Yeah. So one of the examples that we had, there was a, a guy that was robbing over and over again. One time he robbed three times in one day. Mm-hmm. And he had the heavy bottle glasses were very thick to see through. Yeah. So even though he wasn't old, we named him Mr. Magoo. <laughs> And the public saw Mr. Magoo on the 
the news media. We did have a bystander see him rob a bank, Mm. saw the glasses. They called and we arrested him. So that's how the media is supposed to function. But when we interviewed him, he was very upset that we gave him the name Mr. Magoo because he wanted a name that more glorified what he did. Yeah, yeah. So if we're going to use language to to capture and kind of give us a an image of the perpetrator, it shouldn't be anything that, that they would enjoy, but maybe something they'd be embarrassed about, but still gives the public a way to visualize them. Right. And I spoke with our one of our lead people back at BAU uh, for this question. We had a symposium in 2015 where they discussed this at a roundtable, and she said that it is important right upon the event happening that whoever is addressing the media not glorify this in any way because they, the media does cover this extensively for hours, maybe days, maybe weeks mm-hmm. afterwards. And this is, uh, like in the bank robberies, sometimes it's a want ad. Uh, and I found that when when a bank robbery happened and it got a lot of press, sometimes someone would copycat it. Mm. So that's why we tried to make it as distasteful as possible. We really would talk about the sentences that were handed down, the, the consequences mm-hmm. of that behavior, and we hope that the same thing happens with something like this. Mm-hmm. I um, have seen um, Dr. Park Dietz, who's a uh, renowned forensic psychologist or psychiatrist, um, give advice for the media. And he says, um, in addition to the language that we're talking about to avoid glorifying that person with our language, he also recommends specifically to the media when we have one of these incidents uh, where there are multiple people killed and injured, he says, don't lead the story with sirens blaring and lights flashing. Don't have photos of the assailant, especially those that glorify him, look like he's a rock star on the cover of Rolling Stone. I've seen those kinds of images. Don't have 24-7 coverage. Don't make the body count the lead story. Don't make the killer an antihero of sorts, describing, for example, combat attire that he was wearing or all the weapons that he had. Uh, And do localize the story. Make it as boring as possible, kind of what you're saying in other markets so it doesn't get spread. Of course, we need to be informed, but we don't want this person to get notoriety all over the country and avoid the intense saturation coverage. And um, he says when we don't follow that advice in the media, we tend to see copycat uh, incidents, two or three even, in his experience. So validating exactly what you're saying, and his advice is specifically for the media, what to avoid. Right. Yeah. So give us some examples of um, some of the events where targeted violence has been um, uh, an issue uh, without, of course, our, our caution is not to glorify, not to not to um, give notoriety. And yet we can learn. That's something that the, the FBI does a lot in, in the aftermath of an incident. Uh, we learn so much about prevention by examining past incidents. What would be some examples of incidents where we've learned a lot in terms of prevention? So Colorado has had our share of incidents, Mm -hmm. and the Behavioral Analysis Unit uh, functions as mainly a a resource for us, a library, if you would, Mm -hmm. or um, a way to examine 
hopefully ahead of time to mm-hmm. prevent, but then afterwards what we could have done better, both, to, both as law enforcement, maybe as educators, maybe as bystanders. So our biggest incident uh, and probably most uh, egregious one was Columbine. Uh, I have had the privilege of speaking with Sue Klebold on mm-hmm. multiple occasions to learn from her. She's written a couple of Articles, I think a recent book on Mm -hmm. suicide prevention. And we have learned a lot. I've even taken some of that research back to our behavioral analysis Mm -hmm. unit on signs, things that could have possibly been done, but things that you're not seeing at the time as too concerning. And uh, we even had most recently uh, that we were involved in, two girls at a local high school, Mount Vista, who were planning to do something and interrupted in the planning phase. Mm -hmm. And that gets a little bit into the prevention versus prosecution. It's a very difficult thing to prosecute someone who's in the planning phase. Mm. You don't know if they would have gone through with it or not. But I bring that up to say my daughter actually sat beside one of these girls in high school. And it's not easy to identify those people ahead of time. So we do have warning signs. We do have some predictors, but it's not as easy as you would think it would be when someone is in this stage to prevent. Unfortunately, we learn from a lot after the event. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you're really raising such a critical issue. We we would much rather prevent than have to prosecute because that means the crime possibly has occurred. And certainly your dilemma you're saying is, what is there to prosecute if we prevent it? Uh, we've, we've interrupted the behavior before it's escalated down that path to violence. And we'll talk about that pathway to violence model in a moment. Uh, so it, hindsight's twenty twenty, isn't it? I'm sure Sue Klebold probably struggles with that, of all the things that she may feel she missed and didn't see that were detectable. Um, but the key really is educating the public, educating parents, ed- educating teachers and peers. So when we do see signs, uh, we know what to do about them. Uh, and and that, would, that would allow us to prevent something from happening, even if that person weren't going to do something extremely violent. Ultimately, they're still in distress. Something's going on if we're noticing behaviors of concern. And so we can at least prevent uh, them from um, escalating further into any kind of pattern or mental mental health struggles or suicidal thoughts. Yeah, something that really surprised me when I got into the FBI, I thought it was going to be the good guys on one side mm-hmm. of the street, the bad guys on the other. And what you see, especially with kids, sometimes even with adults, is a pathway that they're on, possibly even that we are on, mm-hmm. on our side of the mm-hmm. street. And... The longer that I've worked this, the more I, I hope to stop that pathway, you know, at whatever stage they're on. And a lot of times it involves, just like with Mr. Magoo, uh, the bank robber, a bystander. Mm-hmm. And it works in bank robberies just as well as it works in other targeted acts of violence of someone, whether it's a, a parent, a guardian, a police officer, a teacher, a fellow student being the one to report something that's troubling. And that that person may be on an act of violence just to themselves, Mm -hmm. which is bad. Mm -hmm. And at that point, we can't differentiate 
and that is what I learned from Sue Klebold, is that it's very difficult to differentiate a path of someone who's just going to be violent to themselves versus possibly to carry that on to society in general. Mm-hmm. So uh, some other coordinators like myself who give this speech a lot have found that if we if we can get down to the level of actually caring about these people as human beings right. and allowing them to communicate their frustration in some outlet, we will have a lot more success. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, we'll talk more about threat assessment and threat assessment teams uh, after the break. Uh, but that really is the approach. The, the hope is that um, as we're better trained and better aware at recognizing signs of distress, whether it's someone who may become suicidal, someone who may become homicidal, or simply someone who's becoming depressed or anxious or suffering from some other mental health problem, if we can cast a wider net to just be concerned about people and their well-being, uh, if we could have a culture of caring and compassion and concern, that probably is the best violence prevention intervention any of us could hope for. There's a story of a man who was going to attack uh, an L.A. fitness club in 2009 in Pittsburgh, and he kept a diary. Mm-hmm. And he said he ultimately did attack the fitness club and shot some women and shot himself. But in his diary, he said that his next-door neighbor kept him from attacking mm-hmm. As he walked out the door one day and his neighbor asked him, how are you doing? What's going on? And that totally threw off his pathway to violence just by someone being interested in him. Yes, saying hello. And as you talked about whether that pathway is harm to yourself or harm to others, um, I heard an interview with a man who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and miraculously survived. And he was a teenager at the time. And he said that he had made a pact with himself on his way out of his house uh, to ride the bus to get to the bridge that if even just one person says hello to me and speaks to me or looks at me and smiles at me, I won't kill myself today. And he got all the way to the bridge, got all the way to the edge, and uh, a woman came running over. And he was thinking, oh, my God, you know, I don't have to die today. And the woman, uh, apparently, he said, was from another country, a tourist, didn't speak English, And she kind of pantomimed, can you take my picture? She wanted him to take her picture on the Golden Gate Bridge. He obliged. He took her picture, and she walked away, barely said thank you, barely made eye contact with him. And so he jumped off the bridge. Uh, Miraculously, he survived. But it's such a compelling story of literally making eye contact with someone, smiling at them, saying hello, how are you, Uh, making small talk. You never know where a person is on that pathway to harming themselves or someone else. And that one small gesture can make all the difference. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm talking with uh, FBI Special Agent Jonathan Grusing, and we're talking about targeted violence and uh, lessons learned um, from looking at past events and uh, being able to recognize signs that someone possibly is moving on that path to violence to harm themselves or someone else. And we'll get more into that topic uh, after our break uh, in our last minute or so in this segment, um, Special Agent Grusin, can you share some stats? Uh, the FBI had a study uh, that looked at active shooter incidents between 2000 and 2013. Uh, can you give us a sense of the scope? Because it feels like these things are happening every time we turn around. Uh, and how much of that is true, truly in the numbers and statistics, and how much of it is maybe that glorification by the media that we talked about? The FBI has 
been with the Secret Service and Department of Education to conduct multiple studies to try to find predictors of behavior. Mm -hmm. They've done broad studies and more narrow studies. This was a more narrow study that was a 14-year period uh, to track only targeted violence, not the effective violence like we spoke about where it's uh, an emotional deal. Mm -hmm. They found out of the 160 incidents that occurred, they had a little over 1,000 casualties. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of these occurred in a business or commercial setting. About a quarter of them occurred in educational-type facilities. And they found that this uh, research planning preparation that we spoke about were possibly detectable. Mm -hmm. Well, when we come back, we'll hear more about those numbers and those detectable signs. Again, my guest is FBI Special Agent Jonathan Grusing, and I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. We're talking about targeted violence when we return You'll hear more of those warning signs. Don't go away. We'll be back. 94.7 FM, The Word. One needs to look no further than today's headlines to understand the threats facing American schools. They remain soft targets for violent threats, and yet our schools go largely underprepared. Our children deserve the highest level of education in the safest learning environment possible. The SSI Guardian QAL, or Quick Action Lockdown, is the fastest and safest way to lock down a classroom. This revolutionary device provides schools with maximum locking protection while meeting all safety, fire, and building codes. Designed by the leading lock experts in the world, the QAL is the only lock that meets Department of Homeland Security primer recommendations. SSI Guardian QAL now makes classroom lockdowns fast and safe with the red button. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the best classroom protection. Take action today by calling SSI Guardian at 877-878-5800 or go to guardianprotect.com. That's guardianprotect.com. With SRN News, I'm Ron DeRockstra. President Trump launching a major push this next week for a $1 trillion modernization of American infrastructure, the highway, waterway, electrical, and airway systems on which the nation operates. A law enforcement official says the brother of a man who kidnapped and dismembered an 8-year-old boy in New York City has been found dead in the family's home. A family member discovered Levi Aaron's brother bound, wrapped in a blanket, and stuffed in a closet. Levi Aaron is serving 40 years. Police investigating the Manchester Arena suicide bombing arrested a 24-year-old man yesterday after seizing a car deemed significant to the investigation. He's the 17th person detained in connection with the bombing. Eleven are still in custody. And a benefit concert being held on Sunday with Ariana Grande in session. She was at the concert Monday. It was her concert in which the bombing occurred. She's back with a charity for the survivors. This is SRN News. This is Denver's all-new 94.7 FM, The Word. Renting in Denver? Denver rents have consistently gone up in 014, 15, and through today. Can you imagine how high your rents will be next year? You already know this, but you've struggled to save $10,000, $20,000 or more in down payment to buy your own home. I'm Brian Murphy, owner of Front Range Mortgage, and I may have your ticket out of renting and into a home of your own. We are proud to announce our new 1% down payment purchase program that can get you out of your landlord's pocket and into your own home. 1% down payment equals $3,000 to get you into a $300,000 home. That's $3,000 to own your own home. Call me and my local Colorado-only team for a painless five-minute conversation to see how quickly we can get you into your own home with a mere 1% down payment. 
Our number, 303-500-1900. That's 303-500-1900. Or visit frontrangemortgage.com. NMLS 378844, regulated by the Division of Real Estate. You've been thinking about getting your concealed handgun permit for a while now. Security and peace of mind, self-defense, and home protection, all valid reasons for your concealed handgun permit. You don't need to delay it any longer. Now's the time. DCF Guns in Castle Rock has a concealed carry weapons class. It has a $200 value, but for a limited time, you can get it for just $100 only at DenverHalfPrice.com. That's DenverHalfPrice.com. This class is intended for new and experienced shooters looking to apply for a concealed handgun permit. The classic exceeds the state of Colorado requirements to apply for your concealed permit, this course by DCF Guns in Castle Rock teaches the basic knowledge, skills, and attitude for owning and using a pistol safely. That's a $200 certificate for a concealed carry weapons class for just $100 from DCF Guns and only available at DenverHalfPrice.com. That's DenverHalfPrice.com. That's DenverHalfPrice.com. To learn more about living well with Dr. Peg, visit drpegradio.com. And now, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Welcome back, everyone. My guest is FBI Special Agent Jonathan Grusing. If you would like to share this very important information and informative interview uh, with someone, you can go to drpegradio.com for the program archives. And we're, we were just talking about stats, um, uh, Agent Grusing, and you were saying that um, there were about 160 incidents that were studied in this FBI report. Um, and, and when my reading of the report, that came out to about 11.4 incidents annually. And in some years, there were way more than that. Uh, but that just gives us a sense of it. It feels like kind of every time we turn around, there's another incident, and the the stats kind of bear that out, maybe almost uh, monthly on average in the U.S. Right. The longer-term studies didn't find much of an increase per student population, Mm -hmm. but this study did show, I believe the first seven years, the average was just over six incidents, Mm -hmm. and the next seven, the average was over 16 Mm -hmm. incidents. So there, there is an increase, even even if it's maybe over the long period, not as significant a difference based on population, student population. Yes. Okay. Well, let's talk about this pathway to violence model, because I think the most important message here is while prediction is difficult, detection is possible. There are warning behaviors. There are behaviors of concern that when we are trained and know what to look for, and can be empowered as bystanders, as you mentioned, uh, we can tell someone. And it's not to say that uh, because we see certain behaviors, this means they will be the next school shooter, uh, but it may indicate something is going on, even if they don't ultimately become violent. They're showing behaviors of concern. So can you say more about this pathway to violence and what some of these um, concerning behaviors might be? Sure. And we liken it to the warning signs of a heart attack. Mm. You cannot predict when a heart attack is going to happen, but there are warning signs, and you can hopefully prevent that from happening. Mm -hmm. We look at a pathway to violence that was actually developed by the Secret Service with them trying to protect the president for 100 years, Mm -hmm. and it starts with a grievance. A grievance is a problem that a person has, and it can be with another person. It can be with something that's happened to him or her. 
it can be something that is very minor to you and me, but very major to that person. Mm-hmm. And so it it may be something that's their perception. Is that um, uncommon that um, nothing really happened to them, it's, but they're perceiving that someone has done them wrong? How How common is that? Well, it's very common. And again, in, in dealing with people who have committed sometimes minor crimes, sometimes very major crimes, they all have a reason for why they did that, mm-hmm. the people that I've spoken with. Mm-hmm. And to them, that reason sounds plausible. Right. So the grievance to that individual is very real, regardless of how it seems to you and me. Mm-hmm. And, and our job as law enforcement is to figure out what that is and if there's a way to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So, so that's part of the prevention is if they're perceiving a grievance, whether we believe it or agree with it or not, or it's based in reality or not, doesn't matter. But one intervention and in prevention is to try to help um, them address the problem that they have. And we have no idea how important that is to them unless mm-hmm. we listen to them. If we tell mm-hmm. them what they should think, that does not help them deal with their grievance. Mm-hmm. So, again, prevention, part of prevention is listening, not being so quick to jump and shut someone down or disagree with them, but to really hear where they're coming from. Yes, and the behavior, the aberrant behavior, the possibly criminal behavior comes from that grievance. Mm. And then the next step is an idea. We call it the ideation phase of their attempts to deal with this problem mentally and their decision-making process of where they're going to go next. A lot of times with the, the younger people, the teenagers, a lot of these ideas come out in social media, whether it's mm. Snapchats or texts or different forms to say, I'm having this idea of how to deal with this problem. From there, we go to research and planning, which then it becomes more serious. If they take an idea that's a bad idea, then they start researching and planning on how to implement it. Then they might prepare on an actual act, and then the the breach is actually walking through a door or using a weapon or whatever, and the attack is actually the the event itself. Mm -hmm. So if I could walk you through an example that I use. uh, A grievance to me might be a bad performance review at work. Mm -hmm. And to me it's very important, but to everybody else it's not important. My idea might be, why don't I poison my boss? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a very foolish idea to have. Because a lot of bad things could happen. I would lose my freedom. I would lose my job. My family would disown me. (laughs) You know, a lot of bad things would happen. So a rational person or a person that's dealing in a healthy manner would say, that's crazy. I think I'll just perform better next time. But if you're to let that idea grow and Mm -hmm. come into research and planning, I would then research poisons online. Uh, The preparation, I might actually go buy a poison. The breach would be I put it in my boss's coffee, and the attack Mm. is that he would drink the poison coffee. And you see how far away that is from me actually performing well so I get a better performance review next time. Mm -hmm. But it was just an idea that I allowed to germinate in my mind, and it actually became an action at the end. Right. 
And so a common a common myth with these types of violent acts is that a person just snaps. But what you described, certainly the grievance from grievance to idea could happen pretty quickly. But in terms of executing the research and the planning and the preparation, there would at least be um, a couple days possibly. And so talk a little bit about that notion, that common perception that many people have that um, when when we see interviews on the news after an event occurs and it's it's someone's neighbor and they say, oh, I knew him and it seems like he just snapped. Is that is that a myth or does that fit in with this targeted violence? Well, the, the neighbors probably won't see what happened because they're probably not in that inner circle of what was going on with that person. Whereas the, the family, the best friend, might have detected some warning signs. Mm-hmm. So these warning signs that we'll talk about are not going to be observable to everyone in society. Okay. It'll probably be to that close circle. Mm-hmm. So that's a good point, is it may appear to the general public that someone just snapped, but those who are, are uh, close to the the um, attacker would have seen a progression, would have heard him possibly even talk about the grievance uh, and you also mentioned social media. Um, we see people all the time putting all kinds of things on social media, and we may just minimize it, dismiss it, assume they're just joking. But what would your recommendation be if you were to see someone talking about a grievance where it's going from that grievance to some idea of, of um, carrying out an act of violence? Well, I have teenagers myself. Yeah. They put and everything out there, right? Every thought in their head gets put on social media. Well, they're... That's true, and they're also more expressive in social media than they mm-hmm. are in person. Mm-hmm. And we, as parents, we're trying to get our kids to talk more, look you in the eye, yeah. express their feelings. But their generation expresses so much more on social media. And we're trying to educate you know, the, the facilities, the mental health, whatever, to say, look online to see what these kids are talking about or even possibly adults, because we're in a generation that expresses themselves better online than in person. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what? in addition to expressing a grievance and then maybe letting something, posting something on social media about the idea and even, you know, the research, that might be a place of intervention, for example, for a parent, if you see that your child has been on the Internet and you see the internet history or you walk in the room and see on the screen that they are researching columbine for example or poison in the example that you mentioned what could a what should a parent do if they were to see some evidence of that progression on that pathway communication and if that parent does not have good communication with the son or daughter to get someone who does uh one of the more effective visuals that was given to me for this study was a, a pipe that had water in it that was just barely seeping a lot of pressure. Mm. And a lot of these kids have that pressure built up but nowhere to release it. Mm. And whatever that grievance is, they don't know how to deal with it. And if they don't, a lot of parents don't know how to or don't have a good communication line with their child and so try to find an intermediary, someone who can talk with that child and possibly relieve that problem they're dealing mm-hmm. with. So once again, it's it's those small day-to-day 
interactions that may make a difference in the long um, term. And uh, we never know who really is going to carry out that act of violence, but we can see early on the the leaking, so to speak, from that pipe. Um, And if mm -hmm. I can interject another warning sign here. And once they get past the idea, what we've seen, like with the, the person that attacked the L.A. Fitness Club, he wanted to isolate himself. He did not want mm. communication with the outside. Mm. And we saw that in the Sandy Hook Elementary School. There's actually pictures of the shooter's bedroom where he had tarp up over the, mm. over the windows. He would not let his mom in his room because he did not want to be interrupted. Mm. His pathway had already started. Mm-hmm. So that isolation, we even call it cocooning, mm. is a dangerous thing. Right. And I think um, as pa- for parents of any teenager, uh, it's one thing to give your child space and privacy. And they're in a you know developmental stage as adolescents where they're um, connecting with their peers and kind of... Um, disconnecting to some degree from the adults and parents, uh, but not to let your kids get too far away from you, that if they're not letting you in the room, they're cocooning. That is an issue whether they're on a path to violence or not. Yes, and you had mentioned an an interest in other attacks. Mm -hmm. Another, an interest in weapons can be another warning Mm. sign. So you start seeing multiple things at once, Mm -hmm. like we're discussing, then more serious steps should be taken. Absolutely. And so we'll continue looking at what some of these other signs of, as it's called, leakage, um, where either someone is intentionally letting others know about their plan or even if they're cocooning because they don't want to be interrupted, that is a sign. And so we'll talk about what parents or other bystanders can do to interrupt that pathway to violence. Uh, We're talking about targeted violence and my guest is FBI Special Agent Jonathan Grusing. And when we return, we'll continue our discussion so that you can keep yourself and your family safe. 94.7 FM, the word. Schools can no longer afford not to invest in a professional evidence-based advanced safety education training program. It's the single most important decision and investment a school administrator will ever make in their professional career. When all else fails, training and preparation are the only things that will increase your chances of survival in a violent incident such as an active shooter or act of terrorism. SSI Guardian has set the new standard in advanced safety education by providing evidence-based advanced training programs tailored to your needs. While there are many basic training programs largely based on opinion and emotion, SSI Guardian is the only advanced training program of its type with an accredited continuing education unit or CEU issued by an accredited university. SSI Guardian has set the new standard in advanced safety education by providing evidence-based advanced training and solutions to learning institutions, faith-based and professional organizations. To learn more, call SSI Guardian today at 877-878-5800 or visit guardianprotect.com. To learn more about living well with Dr. Peg, visit drpegradio.com. And now, Dr. Peggy Mitchell Clark. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, if you want to feel excited and embrace lasting change in your life and confident and clear that you're moving in the right direction, you only have a few days left to register for my June 17th Do Something Different for a Change Personal Transformation Retreat. Go to drpegradio.com and click on Retreat. My guest today is FBI Special Agent Jonathan Grusing, and we're talking about targeted violence and that pathway to violence and signs of 
what's called leakage, uh, things that we might see or notice or change in behavior with especially our young people, but anyone really, um, Special Agent uh, Grusing, this could be a coworker at work, someone from church, a friend in the neighborhood. We might see some behaviors that concern us. Yes. So what would be some of the other things that we might see other than the actual, as you discussed, the um, the, the shift from that uh, ideation to actually taking action, the, the thought of I want to do something to this person I have a grievance against, to actually going out and researching it and planning and preparing. What what are some other things we might see that are sh- showing this person uh, something's going on? Maybe they won't become violent, but they're in distress, and these behaviors are concerning. You can see a change in financial spending. It could be a recklessness, as in like the end is coming near, mm-hmm. so they don't care how much money they're spending. It can be the same as medication. Uh, you would think it might be more medication, but it seems to be they cease mm-hmm. taking their medication. Um, and then just a general recklessness we've seen of they're, they're normally pretty compliant and their behavior becomes aberrant for that person. Mm-hmm. As in like they do not care about the consequences when they before they used to. Right. And I think that you hit on a key point there is a change from baseline. A person normally could actually be very outgoing and now they're quiet, but they might have their baseline could be they're very quiet and now they're more outgoing. There's a their dramatic market change there. And it may not mean necessarily they're becoming violent, but it's worth inquiring about. And I think that's something uh, that parents can do when you're not sure you see something on their computer or you're seeing a change in their spending habits or a change in their medication uh, compliance is to simply ask, I noticed X, Y, Z. Can you tell me what that's about? I think sometimes we're afraid to dig a little deeper. Probably we're afraid what we might find out. But um, would you say that that would be a good way to, to, to at least start? I noticed this, fill in the blank. Tell me more about that. I noticed you posted this on social media. What does that mean? You brought up a great point, and I do believe a lot of those bystanders who are close to the person are afraid of what that person might say. Mm. And so I think that pressure just keeps building when that person who is close to the possibly future offender does not ask about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like having a... Um, a growth on your arm and you're afraid to go to the doctor to find out what it is. But meanwhile, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. That's a great example. Yeah. So let's talk about um, uh, motives, why someone would even start doing this. Other than a grievance, are there other common motives involved in targeted violence? There are a lot of motives. And again, it's perception. Mm -hmm. So a motive can be that that person believes he's being bullied. Uh, Even though there might not be outward signs of bullying, something can be perceived as being bullied. There can be a loss, a serious loss in that Mm -hmm. person's life. can be a grievance, as in it's unfair to that person. You can have paranoid, delusional thoughts. Um, Those by themselves are not an indicator that someone's on a pathway to violence, but if other things are occurring in that person's life, then that's something to be concerned about. Mm -hmm. So the social, uh, not being able to communicate socially, we found on a a couple of the major incidents has been an aggravator Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it goes back to the pipe that cannot get any relief from the pressure. 
Right. And so you said that in, in many cases there, there are bystanders that interrupt and prevent an incident from occurring. Um, what can we do? Give us some practical strategies. If we do um, see or we sense something that we're concerned about, um, who do we tell? And then who are, how do those professionals determine, yes, this person is a risk? Uh, yes, there is a threat of violence. So there's a couple ways to be organized about this. One is for a institution to have a threat assessment team. And on the threat assessment team, we would, we would have people from various disciplines around, whether it's your office or your school or your business, that have interface with almost every employee. So if you take a school, for example, it would be your, your administration, a school resource officer, a counselor. Um, you would probably not have your frontline teachers as part of that, but as a situation comes up, you might have them come in and brief your team. And then they might, uh, you know, let the teacher then leave and give a recommendation. But you need to have some body that deals with this on a continual basis. That's really how our behavioral analysis unit functions. They're in Quantico, and they hear incident after incident Mm -hmm. after incident. And so they become well-versed in how to deal with these things. So if you have a team that you have set aside that, can grab as much information as possible and then figure out how to manage that, that's a very effective way to deal with this. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have a team and before an organization can get one started, what would be the appropriate response? Would Do we just call 911? Would we look up the number for the FBI? How do we, how do we activate a threat assessment if we don't have an organized team in place in our environment? Yes, it depends on where this level is uh, along the pathway, and that's hard for people to determine. So I would rather them err on the side of contacting law enforcement too much instead of too little. Okay, yeah. Uh, But, uh, you know, some of the schools have a text-to-tip program where -hmm. you can do it anonymously, and something like that is also very helpful. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're concerned about putting your name out there, you can call and ask to remain anonymous. Mm -hmm. So... We would just like, we, we have a very difficult time identifying a threat if the information never comes in. Right, exactly. So can you give us some examples of um, threat assessment that you've either worked on or that would be a good um, case to illustrate how all of the things we've talked about come together and how we can, um, how we can make a difference through prevention? Sure. There was a, a town in South Colorado where uh, a man was having a, a grievance against a local official, and he was putting up signs. He was very upset at city council meetings expressing his grievance. And they contacted our behavioral analysis unit, they being the local authorities, and they talked a lot about this man and what he was passionate about and what his likes and dislikes were. And they found out that he was a lot into guns, ammunition, law enforcement, whatever. So they they advocated that this bystander, this intermediary, be the sheriff himself mm. to go talk to this man. And the sheriff decided just to buy him coffee. So he met with this guy who's very upset, possibly with the whole city, but for sure you know, some elected official there. And the sheriff bought him coffee. The first one went okay. The second one went better. 
And after a few meetings, all the signs came down mm. and the threat subsided. So that's what we advocate is finding an intermediary who right. can communicate, whether it's an adult, a kid, whatever, to have them be able to get what is bothering them out mm-hmm. and then possibly help that team, whether it's a team or even a law enforcement individual deal with that. Right. And so, again, I think one of the themes we're talking about here is this is not necessarily meant to be punitive. We talked about prevention versus prosecution. Uh, we really want to prevent these things from happening and get help for the person who may have a grievance or perceived grievance and is moving on that path to violence, who's in distress, maybe even has some uh, mental health concerns. Uh, you mentioned, you know, psychosis or delusion. So they really are out of touch with reality. And um, so they're seeing violence as the solution to their problem. And it seems that um, more than we might expect that talking with someone, making a connection with them, trying to help them solve their problem, resolve their grievance, really is a powerful method of intervention. Correct. And if, if a person or an institution recognizes that a, an individual is far down that pathway to violence, mm-hmm. we advocate hardening of the target, which means it can be expelling uh, can be if it's an employee revoking mm. their access. You know, there are physical ways to make it difficult mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. just to protect yourself and your employees. Right. So while you're trying to help that person, perhaps, and help them resolve the issue, develop a rapport with them, you may also be a- a- attempting to protect the target if you're not sure how successful those efforts might be. Right. So a two-pronged approach. Great. Well, are there any protective um, factors, things that we can really cultivate? We just have a minute left um, to end on a good note. If, are there one or two things that if we can be real intentional about them, we can make a dent and, 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 and make a contribution to prevention? Well, if you're interested in this topic, there's a lot of research online. And if you would just Google the, the FBI and Secret Service research on prevention, on active shooter attacks, mm-hmm. uh, the statistics and the case studies give you a lot of uh, real-world examples on how this can be possibly prevented. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, FBI Special Agent Jonathan Grusom, for, for being my guest today. This has just been valuable information. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And listeners, if you're ready for change and want personalized strategies for getting unstuck and moving into your new se- season, register now. From my June 17th, Do Something Different for a Change, Personal Transformation Retreat in Denver, Colorado. Go to drpegradio.com, that's D-R-P-E-G-radio.com, and click on Retreat. My guest has been Jonathan Grusing. I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, brought to you every week by SSI Guardian. To listen to previous episodes, learn more about Dr. Peg's mental health and safety workshops, or to register for an upcoming VIP personal transformation retreat, visit drpegradio.com. You can also purchase Dr. Peg's books, Do Something Different for a Change, and Doggy Tales, Lessons on Life, Love, and Loss I Learned from My Dog, online at drpegradio.com. And remember to join us every Saturday at 1 p.m. on 94.7 The Word FM for Living Well with Dr. Peg. Living well.